Good morning and amen. Ladies, thank you so much. Mabel Sheldon, let me get all my stuff here. Mabel Sheldon was a missionary to Brazil in the 1950s. Her her story is um, told in the book, Listen for the Donkey Bells. And in it, she explains that her mother became a believer shortly after she was married. Her father would not become a believer until much later in life. So it was the mother that taught the six children about Jesus. One of her memories was that when the children would argue or have problems, the mother would say, okay, let's go to the sofa. And everyone knew what that meant. There they would kneel and discuss the offense or the sin or the problem and work things out, and there they would pray. Because she was growing up during the Depression and they had six kids and the father only was working several days a week, money was always an issue. The boys had problems with their clothes. They were too old and too small and full of holes, and so they didn't want to go to school. An aunt eventually sent some clothes that could be made into boys' pants, but the mother did not have a sewing machine, and the father thought it was a preposterous idea to think that they could afford one. But the mother had all of the children gather and kneel at the family sofa and ask God for a sewing machine. Moments after the mom and the children prayed, there was a knock at the door. The postman had a special letter that required a signature, and inside was $10, the exact amount needed for a down payment for a sewing machine. A family member who had never sent them money before wrote that she didn't know why she was sending it other than she had felt burdened to do so. They used the money as a down payment, and then Mabel and her young sister got a job selling Wesson oil. They would go door to door and show people how to make mayonnaise using Wesson oil. With the job, they were able to make the $5 a month payment needed to purchase the sewing machine. Mabel's memories of her father were of him being very angry and anxious. He lived worried and upset. Her mother, however, as a believer, had a very different disposition. She was teaching them that God could be trusted and to gather around the old family sofa and to pray about their needs. I wonder which parent you can relate to. And what are you relaying to your children about God and money and possessions? Do you worry and stress about finances? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 12? Luke chapter 12, we're going to start at verse 15. There is a lot in this passage that should sound familiar. Here we go, Luke 12, 15 says this, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, 
For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will be put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. A 2015 survey by the American Psychological Association found that money is the leading cause of anxiety among parents, among Americans, especially for parents. A survey two years later found that Americans are losing sleep over their financial concerns. We simply cannot have a study on anxiety and worry and not talk about money. A popular mainstream Christian website had an article titled, God is Bigger Than Your Financial Problems. It asked, have you ever experienced stress and anxiety because you're dealing with a ton of financial problems? God doesn't want you struggling or worrying about money and finances. God wants you to have all that you want and need. He even wants you to have an excess. End quote. The author then proceeded to outline five steps about how to obtain that. Now, I found this on a very respectable Christian website, but let me ask you, was that teaching biblical? It was on a Christian website that had reputable pastors contributing it to, to it, but was the author giving Christian gospel advice? Let's compare that thinking 
to this Luke passage because this passage is a major one about the combination of worry and finances. Okay, start with me in verse 15. He says, and he said to them, now that's Jesus talking, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. Possessions. Now, that word covetousness, some of your Bibles may use the word greediness. Okay, and I want to give you a good definition for that because we're going to see that our greediness is very much connected and related to our financial worries. So, on your papers, I have covetousness, and then I have the Greek word for it there. It is a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess more things than other people have all irrespective of need. Okay, that's what it means to be covetous or greedy. It is a passion for possessing. Now, next to that definition, you can write the word idolatry. All right, because elsewhere in the scriptures, we are told that covetousness is idolatry. You can also write next to this, not promised. Now, let me explain that one. God never promises to provide our selfish, greedy desires. All right, you can also write next to that the number 10, because the 10th commandment is do not covet. The writer of the article said, God wants you to have all that you want and need. He even wants you to have an excess. No, no, actually God says to be on guard against that very kind of thinking. I would go back and circle the words more and more in that definition. And if you have the space, you can write the word excess because that's what excess means, more and more. More than necessary. And I want you to notice what Jesus says about excess. He says, be on guard against the desire to acquire excess, against the desire to accumulate stuff. And then he tells us why. Look at verse 15. He says, because your life doesn't consist in the abundance of all your wants and desires. Let's make that our first point. Number one on your papers, guard against all forms of greediness because life is more than the abundance of possessions. I have on your papers the 10th commandment, Exodus 20, 17. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, I want you to notice the role that comparison plays with coveting. Okay, I want you to think about the way coveting works. We see our neighbor's house and we want it. We see our neighbor's stuff and then we compare it to our stuff and we want their stuff, okay? And Jesus says, you are to guard against that. Every once in a while, um, when there's not a sports show on, I will find my husband sitting on the couch working on his paperwork and who might have on um, Fixer Upper. And that, that show is adorable. 
Um, Chip and Joanna, adorable. But here's my problem with that show. I don't ever watch it and think, thank you, Lord, for my home. Thank you for providing me with this home. I, here's what happens. I'm watching it, and I think, you know, my house is nothing like that. My stuff, my stuff's outdated. I need new stuff. Except I don't need new stuff. I want it. I want what they have. And watch what Jesus says. He says, we are to guard against every form of greed. I want to ask you, do you diligently guard against every form of covetousness? Or is that an area of your life you have left unguarded? Life is not about the stuff. And now Jesus goes on, and then Jesus goes on to give us a wonderful parable, a wonderful story to help us understand it better. He tells us the story about a rich man whose land is very productive, so much so that he decides to tear down his old barns and build bigger ones to store the excess. And he says to himself, Self, you have acquired all this wealth. You have enough excess to last for years. So sit back, relax, eat, pour a glass of wine, have some fun. And then God says, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who's going to get all of your stuff? John Piper points out, he is not called a fool for being a productive farmer. It is not a bad thing when you have a good crop. It is not a bad thing when your husband comes home and he announces that he's been given a raise and he's been promoted. That's not the evil in this story. So what is? Why is he being called a fool? Well, look back with me at verse 17. Now, as I read this, I want you to pay attention to the personal pronouns. Okay, here we go. Verse 17. And he thought... To himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my, my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample good foods, ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Okay, now this is a guy that is totally absorbed with himself. Okay? He is certainly not consumed with the kingdom of God. He's got plenty of stuff, and he's got plans to enjoy all the stuff that he's accumulated. But then God interrupts. Verse 20, he says, You fool, this night your soul is required of you. You fool. You thought this was all about you. You had all these plans, and you thought you were in charge, but you are not. I have decided this is the end of the line for you, and now what difference is any of this stuff going to make? Verse 21. 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This guy was laying up treasure for himself. He was promoting himself. He was acquiring stuff for himself and his own glory instead of being rich toward God, instead of seeking first the kingdom of God. Let me ask you, are you laying up treasures for yourselves? Are you self-absorbed? Are you a self-promoter or your child's promoter? Do you covet? Do you look at your Instagram or your Facebook or whatever and compare your stuff to what you see on those? Do you compare your kids or your bodies or your homes or your vacations? Are you comparing or coveting any of those things that money can buy or impact? Because there is a word for it. Foolish. It is a foolish endeavor. And this parable gives us one clear reason why. Because God is sovereign and it could all change or be taken away like like that. Here's our next point. Number two, God is sovereign over our finances and earthly possessions. Not only is God in complete control, but life is more than the abundance of your possessions. Your life is more than the acquiring and the displaying of stuff. Verse 22. <clears throat> and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now you might want to circle the word therefore. Some of your versions may say for this reason. Now, those are connecting words. We've talked about those before when we're studying the Bible. That is telling us that what Jesus is about to say next is connected to what he's just said. Now, he's just told us that, we're, that, that greediness and covetousness is wrong. Now he's going to tell us that worry is wrong. But we're going to see that covetousness and worry, they're related. Okay? He's, tell, he's going to tell us why. Verse 23, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Now he's repeating himself. He's just said something like that in verse 15. Your life is more than the food you eat and the clothes you wear. Your life, the lives of your children, consist of a soul, an eternal soul, created for eternity. And you can be sure that that has more to do than the abundance of your possessions and what you will eat, and what you will wear. I want to ask you, what are you teaching your children or your grandchildren? What is your life modeling before them? Are you teaching them? Are you practicing in front of them that life is more than foods or iPads 
or sneakers or the shape of your body. Let's make that our next point. Number three, life consists of a soul created for eternity and is not based on temporal earthly things. Okay, now, Jesus, he's just laid out the futility of getting caught up in chasing the things that the world desires and chases after. And, uh, and what we're going to see him do is expound to us about what God is like. Now, we've talked about that every week so far, the importance of knowing what God is like. He's just emphasized God's sovereignty over life and death and finances. Now, you know, if you were to learn tomorrow that Hitler was now globally ruling, that he had become the sovereign, supreme ruler over the nations, you would find that terrifying. We, we would find that terrifying because we know what he is like. We know what his character is like. All right, so Jesus has just talked to us about the sovereignty of God. Now he's going to help us understand more about the character of God and what God is like. I want you to notice what he says next. Verse 24, he says, consider the ravens. All right, consider, that means think. That means observe closely. Consider the ravens because they are telling a story about the character of God. Ravens, they were an unclean scavenger bird as birds go. Apparently, they were considered, you know, as, as birds go, they were at the bottom of the um, ladder. Matt Chandler called them rats with wings. They didn't put a single seed in the ground. They were just a filthy bird, and yet God provided for them. I want you to look earlier at verse 6. He says, consider the sparrows. Now, the sparrows were a little more useful. You could buy five of those for two cents, and people would actually eat them. Now, there wasn't much to it, but they, but they could still use them to eat. Now, his point is that God, in his sovereignty and his providence and his kindness, provides for the birds. And if God takes care of a transient bird, a filthy bird that eats trash and roadkill and has no soul, will he not care for you? Here's our next point. God is not a deadbeat father. You matter more than birds. Every time you see a bird, you can be reminded of this. God is not a deadbeat father. He cares far more for you than the raven, and he provides for the birds how much more for his eternal children. Verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. Now, we've talked about this one before. Jesus is saying, worry accomplishes nothing. And he's going to give us another reason not to worry. He's mentioned the ravens. He's likely actually pointed to them as they flew in the sky. And now he's going to point to the flowers. 
to the beauty of those flowers that are just growing off on the hillside wild. He says, verse 27, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. When I was young and new in my faith, I knew that God was my, was my father and my provider. But um, for some reason in my mind, I had this thinking that God was very stingy and reluctant. And so I had to beg and negotiate for everything. I, in my mind, I kind of had him pictured as a, as a crusty old Dickens character. And I was the little orphan Oliver, you know, asking for a, a crust of bread. And um, don't know why I thought that. I had a very loving childhood. I have no explanation for that thinking. But as I began to get into the Word of God, and as I began to know God more, I began to realize just how unbiblical that thinking was. God is not a stingy father. God is not a stingy father looking for the dreariest and most cost-effective way to provide for your needs. The God of the Bible is lavish and generous and beneficial and extravagant. Why? Look at the flowers. Here's our next point. God is not a tight-wad father. He is lavish and extravagant. God is benevolent and generous and lavish. The author put it this way, Jesus is on a mission to beautify the world. I want you to think about it. God gives us sunsets to see with our eyes. He gives us music to hear with our ears. He gives us food to taste. He gives us coffee to smell. He gives us little babies to touch and cuddle. God is lavish. God is generous. One church blog pointed out that in every book of the Bible, the giving nature of God is fleshed out. Now, I have to be very careful here because the prosperity preachers have perverted much of this. They are going to tell you to think positivity and that God wants you to be wealthy and rich and have all the best parking spots. But do you see the difference between somebody telling you that God wants you to be rich and have excess and me telling you that God is lavish and extravagant? Jesus ended the portion with, you men of little faith. Now, I want you to look up at verse 22. And he said to his disciples, disciples, I'd circle that. Do not be anxious. He's directing that to his disciples. This, this is not for the crowd. This is not worldly advice. This is gospel giving counsel to his disciples. He explains in verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. All right, the nations covet. Remember when we talked in the book of Matthew, we said something similar. We said the Gentiles did these things. The Gentiles, the nations, the world around you worries 
about what they will eat and drink every day, but you are to be different from them. All right, here's our next point. Number six, there should be a distinction between believers and non-believers regarding our, our anxieties and material pursuits. The missionary, Mabel Sheldon, grew up watching the distinction between her mother, who was a believer, and her father, who was not. The father was always worried and anxious. Her mother was continually teaching her children to to trust God. Mabel would ask her mother, why are we so poor? And her mother would say, we're not poor. God gives us everything we need. Jesus said, the Father knows exactly what we need. Here's our next point. God is not an absentee Father. He knows exactly what we need. He is not a tightwad. He is not a deadbeat. He is not an absentee. He is actively and generously involved in taking care of you. Verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Now, we talked about this our first lesson. We said that to seek the kingdom of God, I have this on your papers, is to be consumed with the kingdom, be consumed with seeing God's reign and rule over your life, your family, and your church. Okay, it means you bow down to your king. You seek the rule of Jesus Christ in your lives over every aspect of your life, and you do it first. He is promising that if we are preoccupied with him and his kingdom, he's going to take care of everything else. All right, then last week we talked about the phrase, and these things will be added to you. We said that he is not promising that we will have everything that we need to be comfortable or even stay alive. That if you compare this with the rest of Scripture, we are told that those desiring to live a godly life They are promised persecution. If you uh, were here when we studied the book of 1 Peter, we saw that suffering and persecution are to be expected in the Christian life. So this verse is not a promise against suffering or lack. And so on one hand, we need to know that. But on the other hand, we also need to understand what our Father is like. Verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, do not fear, fear not, little flock. That, by the way, is a very endearing term loaded with compassion. I want you to imagine picking up a puppy and saying, don't be afraid. Little dear one, I'm here. I'm going to take care of you. That is the picture of this verse. Jesus is comforting his flock. He's saying anything that you need to be a good citizen of the kingdom of God, God will provide you. Anything that you need to live effectively under the rule of Jesus, God will provide for you. 
And he will not only provide for you, he delights to do it. It is God's good pleasure to give it. Here's our next point, number eight. God is not a hard and unfeeling father. You could put cold-hearted in there. He is tender and compassionate. This is what God is like. So what are we to do? Verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Okay, Jesus has just described to us the giving of an extravagant father, and now he's telling us to act the same way. You're his child. Act and look like him. He's saying you need to have a loose grip on your stuff and be unattached to the things that you own, and instead be generous. You see, the man in the parable, the problem was not that he had a lot of money. The problem was not that he had a savings account. The problem was what he did with it. He used it all on himself. God wasn't on his radar. The kingdom of God was not on his radar. Verse 34, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your treasure, that's the object of your affection. And the heart follows the treasure. You need to teach your children this. Your heart follows the treasure. Whatever you're treasuring, that's where the heart will follow. Let's make that a point. Number nine, the heart will follow the treasure. Billy Graham is quoted as saying, give me five minutes with a person's checkbook and I will tell you where their heart is. Author and, and pastor Sam Storms writes this. My dad was a banker for the first 35 years of his life. He often said to me, give me five minutes in a man's checkbook and I'll tell you everything you need to know about him. I'll tell you whether or not he loves God, his wife, and his children. I'll tell you whether or not he really believes the Bible. I'll tell you what he values and what he hates, what he believes and how he spends his time. I'll tell you whether he can be trusted or whether he lies, how he'll respond in a crisis and in time of ease. I used to think my dad was exaggerating, but no more. End quote. Your checkbook, your visa statement, many would add your calendar, are going to be tattletales of your heart and what you treasure. Let me ask you, what do you treasure? In the past, we've said that the tongue or your speech was a tattletale of the heart. Well, apparently your checkbook is too. Some of you may have very gracious, godly speech, but maybe your visa statement or your calendar is telling another story. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Your heart follows your treasure. Now, ideally, we might think, well, wait a minute. I'm a believer. I now have a new changed heart. So my treasures will follow my heart. But that's really the opposite of what Jesus is saying. 
He's saying your heart follows your treasure. When you put money towards something, when the, when the average person puts money towards something, or maybe you put time towards something, then you have a vested interest in it. Okay? It's the treasure, and your heart follows the treasure. Alistair Begg tells the story of a pastor that was a very wise counselor, and people would approach him for guidance and help. And so after they would set up a time and a place to meet, he would say to them, bring your checkbook. And they would say, are you going to charge me for this session? And he would say, no, I just want to find out where your heart is. What stories would your checkbook tell? Jesus is showing us that there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual hearts and what we do with our money and our possessions, and for that matter, time. Now, what does this have to do with worry and anxiety? Well, we have said that we worry about the things that we love and we value. Our worries are always going to be connected to the things that we love and treasure. You can't separate the two. So here's our next point, number 10. A worrier is storing treasure in the wrong place. Where is your treasure? My first home had a hall closet that was right next to my front door. And, um, And it was near my kitchen. And so I kept my vacuum cleaner in it and a bunch of other different things. And so consequently, I was in and out of it pretty frequently. And one day, I noticed my husband's leather jacket hanging in there. And I got to thinking, you know, that's a really nice jacket, and nobody wears it. He doesn't wear it anymore. He's outgrown it. And um, it was Pennsylvania, and so I knew people needed winter jackets. And so I thought, you know, we should give this to somebody that can use it. And so it seemed like every time I would open that closet door, I would have that thought, you need, to, you need to give this away. And so finally one day I asked my husband, hey, what would you think if we gave that leather jacket away? And he said, sure. And so the next time I went into that closet, it was as if I had another thought. You should give that jacket to Tom Stevenson. Now, Tom and his wife, they were friends of ours. They were trying to get their affairs in order so that they could go into ministry full-time. So that just seemed like the perfect thing to do, give that jacket to him. And sure enough, every time I would get into that closet, I would think, you know, you should give that to Tom Stevenson. And it even got to the point where I felt like the jacket was screaming to me, get me to Tom Stevenson. So finally... One day I said to my husband, hey, what would you think if we gave uh, Tom Stevenson that jacket? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, Heidi, Tom is bigger than me. And besides, what are we going to do? Just go up to our friends and say, hey, will you take our old clothes? And so uh, I dismissed it. I said, no, he's shorter. I have, I, we need to give him the jacket. And so that week I took the jacket and I gave it to his wife. And a couple weeks later, I saw her, and I said, hey, um, how'd that jacket work? And she just kind of shook her head real sad, and she said, sorry, it was too small. And so I went home, and I told my husband the jacket didn't fit, and he said, I told you it wasn't going to fit. And, and I was like, I know, but I just felt like I was supposed to get that jacket to Tom. 
Well, a couple weeks later, his wife came up to me and said, hey, I wanted to tell you, I found somebody to take that jacket. And I said, well, I was thinking in my mind, uh, whatever, because <laughs> I, I, I could have found somebody to take that jacket. It was a great jacket. I just thought I was supposed to give it to Tom because he was going to use it. But, um, so I said, um, oh, I'm glad to hear that. And she said, no, there's more. She said, we had friends of ours over. They're in the ministry. And she said they were there for a, a funeral. And so one night, the parents were away at the funeral, and we had the kids. And Tom looked at their 15-year-old son and said, hey, I'll bet that jacket of Bob Geisler's would fit him. And so we got it out, and he tried it on, and it fit perfectly. And I said, good, good, glad, glad somebody could use it. And she said, wait, there's more. She said when the mom came home that night and she saw him wearing that jacket, she started to cry. She started, she broke down in tears and said, we have been praying for God to provide him with a jacket. And she said, he didn't have one and we didn't have the money. And so we have been praying and praying. And I thought, that boy's jacket was hanging in my closet. Now, here's the thing. God is going to provide for you in answer to prayer. He's going to provide in ways that teach you, that stretch you, that grow you. He's going to provide in ways that display his beauty and his glory and grow his kingdom. That's how God works. And I don't know what God has in store for you in the years ahead when it comes to your earthly needs. My experience is that it'll probably be difficult and it'll probably stretch you. And so you're going to have to make some decisions. Are you going to trust God or not? Are you going to treasure God? Are you going to be the kind of mom that gathers up the family and takes them to the family sofa to pray and cry out to God? Are you going to pace and worry and wring your hands and, and worry? Are you going to teach your children that you're not poor and that God gives you everything you need? And even if you don't have the latest gadgets and trinkets and toys, that God is a gracious and good God? Will you teach them that the birds and flowers tell a story? Are you going to be consumed with the kingdom of God and trust God to provide in ways that best put his glory on display. Here's our last point. God will provide for our needs in ways that best display his attributes and glory and grow his kingdom. 
Will you pray with me? Oh, Father God, we thank you that you are not a deadbeat father. You are not a tightwad father. You are not an absentee father. You are generously and actively involved in caring for our needs, and we praise your name for it. I pray these women will just get to know in their depths of their heart what you are like. And we pray and ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus, stay.